You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Adobe patches a flash vulnerability. Invisimole is a discrete selective cyber espionage tool. A Facebook glitch inadvertently changed users' default privacy settings. Lidos exits the commercial cyber market. China is back at IP theft and some conventional cyber espionage, too. Congress wants explanations of data sharing with Huawei and ZTE, and it wants those companies investigated as security risks. And the Fed's Facebook friend felons. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, June 8th, 2018. Adobe issued an emergency patch yesterday of a flash vulnerability that's being exploited in the wild. The company credited security firm Iceberg with alerting them to the problem. The exploit, CVE 2018-5002, is being used to backdoor a selected set of Windows machines. Most of the exploitation has been against targets in Qatar, still in bad odor with other regional Arab powers, including Bahrain, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, all of whom participate in a trade embargo against Qatar. At issue are Qatar's alleged Iranian connections, Iran, of course, representing a regional and religious rival to the Sunni governments in the area. Whether you're in Qatar or Cucamonga, if you use Flash, you'd be wise to apply Adobe's patch. ESET is analyzing Invisimole, a cyber espionage tool that can backdoor targets, engage in remote code execution, and steal audio from infected devices. It's uncommon, and ESET offers no attribution, but the malicious malware has been found in Ukrainian and Russian computers. A Facebook glitch inadvertently turned some 14 million users' private data public. It changed the default settings on those accounts from private to public at the end of May, between the 18th and the 22nd of the month. Facebook regrets the issue and advises users to take a look at whatever stuff they may have posted last month. Lidos becomes the latest U.S. federal contractor to exit the commercial cybersecurity market, selling its commercial unit to the Paris-headquartered multinational Capgemini, which hopes its acquisition will help it make further inroads into the North American market. CrowdStrike says that after more or less abiding by a 2015 mutual undertaking with the U.S. not to engage in the massive theft of intellectual property, China is back at it with a vengeance. CrowdStrike doesn't offer any particular reason for the upswing, merely making note of what it's seeing— 
but observers speculate that it's linked to recent trade tension between the U.S. and China. Recorded Future sees a different potential explanation, at least a partial one. They see the shift as the result of reshuffled agency equities after the consolidation of signals and intelligence organizations into China's large strategic support force, a process that began in late 2015. The strategic support force is intended to play a significant role in China's strategy for achieving technological and economic superiority sooner rather than later this century. And of course, the royal road to such superiority is much eased if you can simply take the technology as it's developed. The U.S. is aware of this, having taken official note of the matter in a March 22nd report by the Office of U.S. Trade Representative. Intellectual property isn't the only concern with respect to China's cyber operations. They're also engaging in more obvious forms of espionage. This afternoon, U.S. officials speaking under conditions of anonymity told the Washington Post that Chinese intelligence services had hacked an unnamed contractor working at the Naval Undersea Warfare Center in Rhode Island and successfully exfiltrated sensitive data concerning submarine operations. There are also human intelligence concerns related to data sharing and analysis. As the South China Morning Post sees it, cribbing from the late Baltimore novelist Tom Clancy, extensive data sharing with Huawei in particular represents the sum of all fears for the U.S. As the paper puts it, quoting a tweet by Senator Marco Rubio, a Republican from Florida, quote, If Facebook granted Huawei special access to social data of Americans, it might as well have given it directly to the government of China. End quote. Here's an irony. Facebook is banned in China, where the regime isn't particularly open to platforms that facilitate social interaction. But the government there is thought to be interested indeed in the data Facebook holds on its users elsewhere. Facebook did acknowledge earlier this week that it had shared access to data with a number of Chinese companies, that included Lenovo, Oppo, TCL, and of course Huawei. They did so, said Facebook's vice president of mobile partnerships, in a controlled way. Controlled or not, Huawei denied collecting or analyzing Facebook user data. Few in Congress seem mollified. Indeed, the U.S. Congress appeared to be loaded for bear in its investigations of ZTE and Huawei and their alleged U.S. partners, Facebook and Google. Senator Warner, a Democrat from Virginia, has promised to lead efforts to pull away the lifeline President Trump tossed ZTE. ZTE, you will recall, was in Commerce Department hot water for its evasion of U.S. sanctions against various pariah regimes, especially Iran and North Korea. It was also in hot water for lying about its dealings with those countries. ZTE agreed in exchange for renewed access to American products it needs to stay in business, to pay a fine of more than a billion dollars, to overhaul its board of directors, and to install a U.S.-designated compliance team that would look to its good behavior over the next ten years. But Congress intends to continue its investigations. Security, and not sanctions evasion, is the issue with the Chinese companies. Google seems likely to be hit with a record EU antitrust fine over the way in which it manages apps in the Android ecosystem. The fines, which Reuters expects the European commissioners to announce in about a month, during the week of July 9th, are thought likely to exceed the 2.4 billion euros Google endured last year. The 2017 fines were over the ways in which the search engine favored its own products over those of competitors. 
This time, they're mostly concerned with the ways in which Google's dominant position in Android enables it to bend app developers to its commercial will. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission wants to hear from cryptojacking victims. If you've been the victim of crypto mining software installed in your devices, you can let the FTC know online at ftc.gov complaint. The Commission's announcement is thought by observers to amount to the first notice by the U.S. government that cryptojacking is illegal. Finally, we found out, and we were asking for a friend, that law enforcement personnel often make it a practice of friending convicted felons on, where else, Facebook, once such felons have served their time and are out of the slammer. Why do they do it? To keep an eye on them. Felons, for example, aren't supposed to own guns, yet they persist in posing with them in front of their Facebook friends. A Delaware court ruled that the undercover practice is perfectly legal, so caveat shooter, if that is you're a felon, not that any of you would be. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Rick Howard. He's the Chief Security Officer at Palo Alto Networks. He also heads up Unit 42, which is their threat intel team. Rick, welcome back. Um, you all recently had your Cybersecurity Canon Hall of Fame gala. By all accounts, a, a successful, fun evening. And uh, you wanted to bring us up to date and share with us uh, who are the winners this year. Yeah, you know, uh, this is the culmination of the 2018 season where we actually gave awards, the Hall of Fame awards, to the winning authors. Uh, and you know what the Canon Project is. It's yes. uh, it's kind of a, a rock and roll hall of fame for cybersecurity books going on for five years. And so if you're going to better yourself this year and read some book on some new topic, how do you decide, okay, which book you want to read? And if you go to Amazon, 
and look up cybersecurity books, you're going to have to choose between some 2,000 and 3,000 entries. So how do you decide? So here's this uh, give back to the community service. The community reads the books, finds out which books you should read, and those are the ones you should start with. Do you want to hear who won the Canon Gala Awards for this year? I'm on the edge of my seat. I can tell. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so uh, the first one, uh, it's been on the candidate list for a couple of years, right? Uh, but we're very happy to put it in the Hall of Fame, a book called Metasploit, The Penetration Testers Guide by David Kennedy, Jim O'Gorman, Devin Kearns, and Maddie Aroni. I think that's how you say his name. Now, uh, you, you're, you've heard of Metasploit before, right? Sure. Yeah, it's a tool that's been around for years. Uh, it's the default tool for penetration testers. But what's great about this book, it's uh, written for beginners. Uh, so uh, if you're new to the craft, you can take it and learn how to become a penetration tester using this tool. But there's also lots of information uh, for the seasoned practitioner. So Metasploit has made it into the Hall of Fame. All right. Who else? Second one, Site Reliability Engineering, How Google Runs Production Systems by Betsy Beyer, Chris Jones, Jennifer Petoff, and Neil Richard Murphy. Now, I've been hawking this book for the last year or two. Mm -hmm. um, I love this book. Okay, It is the follow-on reader. If you've already read The Phoenix Project and you are interested in DevOps uh, and the DevOps philosophy, this particular book, Site Reliability Engineering, uh, is the how-to manual. All right, It's how Google did it. Uh, when they started their first search engine back in 2004, they were doing this DevOps kinds of thing, you know, six years before DevOps even had a name for itself. So mm -hmm. if you want to figure out how to do it, that's the one to do. Number three, for my social engineers uh, in the crowd, Unmasking the Social Engineer, the Human Element of Security by Christopher Hadnagy. Okay, now this book is for serious readers okay, who want to understand everything they can about the topic of social engineering. Hagnetti uh, relies heavily on some research by Dr. Paul Ekman, the renowned psychologist, right? This is a fantastic uh, entry-level book for how do you do social engineering. And so uh, Mr. Hagnetti is in the Hall of Fame. The fourth entry is a book called Worm by Mark Bowden. Do you, do you remember Mark Bowden? He's a famous author in other subjects. Mm. He is probably most famous for writing Black Hawk Down. And, oh, sure. Uh, yeah, and he wrote the screenplay to the movie, right? And so... Uh, he wrote this book about the Conficker cabal, you know, and how a bunch of people in our a bunch of network defenders in the industry got together and tried to take that thing down. It is a great slice of uh, cybersecurity history. Uh, and uh, Mr. Bowden came out to the gala uh, and we gave him his, you know, Academy Award like trophy. And he was very eloquent. And so and I got to interview him on t on TV. All right. So it was fantastic. <laughs> it was a highlight of my career. All right. All right, so with those four books, go to the Canon website and uh, start your education from there. All right, as always, Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber.
My guest today is Corey Petty. He's a blockchain scientist at Booz Allen Hamilton and host of the Bitcoin podcast and Hashing It Out. When I got into this, we always wondered when people would understand or know about blockchain or Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. And now, based on the plethora of ICOs and the public interest they've received, most people have heard the words but don't quite understand what it means or what they do or the implications of what they can do. And right now, we're in a state of building the basic infrastructure that's required for people to interface with these technologies without really knowing it, like how we use the Internet today. Now, with all of the enthusiasm, particularly with um, with Bitcoin and, and sort of the I don't know, the, the gold rush, if you will. Um, do you suppose that, that uh, blockchain has suffered for that? I mean, it seems like in some uh, areas it's become a bit of a punchline. That's kind of a sign of the times for me. What had happened, we created something called the ERC-20 token and made it simple enough for people to use and interact with without them really knowing what they're doing. And so I liken it to us finding out how to use fire and burning ourselves a little bit during the process of figuring out how to use it. And we're going to see this happen multiple times as we keep creating new standards and new tools people can use that's based on blockchain and then watch as people play around with it to see where it's useful. What do you have your eye on? What are some of the areas of focus for you in terms of uh, the usefulness of blockchain? I have a hard time not spreading myself too thin, to be honest. It's such a infrastructure level, like the ground zero of how computers operate and transact digital assets that it has a finger in almost all parts of human existence, whether it be how we come together on decisions, large decisions in a decentralized manner across the globe, how we transact value, how we send money. I try and figure out how this is impacting things, but I really want to do it in a way that takes trust away from an individual and puts it into a system so that greed can't be a part of it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Where do you think we are most likely, a a typical consumer, where do you think they're most likely to see uh, an effect on their daily lives based on some sort of underlying blockchain technology? Initially, you'll start to see two main things come into play where people will start to actually use them and know that they're using them. And that's going to be with games, because games are always the first way to play around with a new technology that enables things in a setting that isn't too daunting or scary in terms of money or problems or trust of information. Hmm. And you'll also see it in things like social networks, especially with the modern cry of how people use the data you give them when interacting with the centralized social networks that we have today. Blockchain-based social networks don't have that problem because in a quality blockchain network, the user still controls the data. Now, let's dig into that a little bit. When you say a quality uh, blockchain social network, what do you mean by that? One that's run in a trustless manner. The word blockchain is a very general term. And what people typically associate with it is either Bitcoin or Ethereum or maybe one of the few other open trustless networks, which have to operate in a manner that you basically don't trust anybody you're interacting with and the system runs okay. But there's also a long string of experiments and attempts for people to write permissions and trusted networks that don't offer the same types of guarantees, but they're all under the same moniker blockchain. So it's really hard to kind of digest and and grok the difference between these things if you don't understand that type of concept. What would the, the, the most obvious benefits be for a user of that sort of network? Not having their data mined or 
not having to care about who can make decisions on the types of transactions you'd like to do or who you'd like to interact with. Right now, in a lot of these centralized services that we use, they're free because you're the product. It's not one of those things where the person who uses it gets to control the information they put into that network. It ends up putting a lot of power and a lot of profit into the hands of the people who own the network, as opposed to a decentralized network where that value is usually spread across the people who actually use it and not the people who administer it. You know, we had a, a listener uh, write in with a question, and, and uh, I think it might be a good one for you. They were asking, how do you deal with the tension between GDPR, um, which includes the, um, the right to be forgotten, and something like the blockchain where information can't be easily deleted? Or it can't be deleted whatsoever. Yeah. Um, that's going to be an interesting concept. And in the current state of blockchains, the thing that you use to interact with them is a pseudonymous address or just a string of numbers that ends up being your user ID, if you will. Your personal information attached to that address can be obfuscated or hidden so that people don't really need to know who you are when you interact with the blockchain and how you use it. Further along the lines, we'll have things that require more information about the link between that user ID and the person who owns it, which could have pretty interesting consequences in terms of the right to be forgotten and such things because open and public blockchains get their trustlessness from the fact that they can't be changed. Right. And I think it's more along the lines of we need a change in the social interactions and how we think about using applications needs to be changed. We can't assume that because we interact with something, it can be deleted later because that's the way it's always been. So take us through the Bitcoin podcast. Um, what do you talk about there and what do you hope your audience gets out of that one? We started out creating that show because we felt that the majority of media surrounding Bitcoin and blockchain, it was just Bitcoin when we started, so it's called the Bitcoin podcast, was overly technical and focused on a few projects that were the front runners of the entire ecosystem. We wanted to get a voice of everyone in the entire ecosystem. So we've made it a point to interview everyone, the leaders, the creators, the people who trade things, the people who use it that's changed their lives in various ways. So we try and cast a very wide net in the types of information we put on that podcast. And I think we've been successful with it. Are there, are there any particular insights that, that have struck you over the course of doing the show? Things that Things that you learned that you didn't expect when you were going into it? I always heard the things that or the ideologies that people pushed when this technology started becoming larger and larger and larger. As the different networks have been created, I realized that they're all wrong. They're, they're not necessarily wrong. They're just not complete. Oh. There is, I think it's arrogant to say you know what blockchain will look like in the future because every time someone said that, we've done something to make it look different. And it's so young and there's so much to be learned and figured out that you have to take it at a grain of salt and roll with the punches. And when we first started, Bitcoin was the only thing that existed. And so people thought anything that tried to be like Bitcoin would automatically fail or was an intruder. And over time, we've seen Ethereum grow and grow and grow and become something that is a very viable, useful network that is different than Bitcoin. Mm. And it's not one chain to rule them all. It's more along the lines of many things to do, many types of applications and interaction. And so the future of what this whole thing is going to become 
is beyond my scope or understanding. And anyone who says they understand, I think, is naive. That's Corey Petty from Booz Allen Hamilton. Don't forget to check out his podcasts, The Bitcoin Podcast and Hashing It Out. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.